are grateful to the Lord to be able to share in the word. And he didn't mention a special announcement. I'll mention that um, towards the end of the service of the sermon today. But I am grateful that we are picking back up. So what we've been doing in our churches, we've been preaching through the entire book of 1 Samuel. And so we're actually all the way up to 1 Samuel chapter 8 today. And it's one of those sermons where it was, it was really a good point where I felt like we all could kind of join in together and, and go through this sermon and get today. Don't need a lot of context because a lot of you may be familiar with this text, but I do think it will be a rewarding text to share together. So the title of today's sermon, if you haven't noticed, is King Me, King Me. And so if you know anything, I don't play checkers, I play chess, all right? You know, only real people play, play chess. <laughs> Amateurs play checkers. Yeah, so I see all the people. My dad and I play chess. We have, so I checked the stats. We've played... I think it's 270-something games. I beat him twice. So um, I'm probably not the best person to give you advice on chess, but maybe I can give you a little advice on checkers today. So um, and like I said, we've been going through First uh, Samuel, and some of the things that we've noticed as we've been going through First Samuel are some major themes that we've been seeing kind of recurring every week. And some of those themes that we have seen as we've gone through this book are themes like false and idol worship, themes like idolatry, themes like disobedience to the law of God. And those are some of the things that on multiple occasions as we've gone through this book, we've actually seen those things. And so last week I took some time and we looked and we saw where Israel seemingly came to a point where they realized, all right, you know what, we have sinned. And not only have we sinned, but we have been in sin for a long time, and that was a penultimate point where they seemingly repented, turned from their sinful ways, and began to pursue God. In that time, they had mishandled the ark, they mixed pagan worship, but they finally got to a place of true and sincere repentance. However, we're going to see today that it is what we're going to seem to see is a dramatic shift back to their rebellion. But I actually think what we see today goes much deeper than just their rebellion. And I hope that as we look at this text today, not only will we learn rich truth from yesteryear, but we will also see how transformative this revelation can be for us today. So we're going to look at 1 Samuel 8, and we're going to start in chapter, verse number 1. It says, When Samuel became old... He made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn was Joel, and of his second, Abijah. They were judges in Beersheba. Yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like the, all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel, what they said, give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord, and the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people and all they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. Now then, obey their voice. 
Only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. So Samuel told all the words of the Lord of the Lord to the people who were asking for a king from him. He said, these will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. And he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest and to make his implements of war and the equipment of his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and your vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. He will take the tenth of your grain of your vineyards and give it to his officers and to his servants. He will take your male servants and your female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to his work. He will take the tenth of your flocks and you shall be his slaves. And in that day you will cry out because of your king whom you've chosen for yourselves. But the Lord will not answer you in that day. But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. And they said, no, but there shall be a king over us, that we may also be like all the nations, and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. And when Samuel heard all the words of the people, he repeated them in the ears of the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, obey their voice and make them a king. Samuel then said to the men of Israel, Go every man to his city. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the word of God. Lord, it is such a rich truth to be found here today. And God, we pray that as we see how the people of Israel hoped in a human king to change their situation, God, that we would see how we have also misplaced our hope in humanity. God, help us know that there is only one true king, and he will not be dethroned. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So this is one of those texts that is probably pretty standard knowledge if you're just a, you know, typical church attendee. You know, if, if you have been in church for a certain amount of time, you've probably come across this text once or twice. Now, I've talked about this before, actually, in our church, but I actually want to give all the people here some context who may not know regarding what judges were and why Israel was actually rejecting these judges. And so, so that we can understand, we also need to know that God had created a system that was specific to Israel for governing themselves, and it was the way that he wanted them to be governed. And so that way, the requirements of those judges is actually found for us in Deuteronomy 16 and 18. It says, you shall appoint judges and officers in all your towns that the Lord your God is giving you according to your tribes, and they shall judge the people with righteous judgment. You shall not pervert justice. You shall not show partiality, and you shall not accept a bribe. For a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise and subverts the cause of the righteous. Justice and only justice you shall follow, that you may live and inherit the land that the Lord your God is giving you. And so look at what he instructs. He gives us five clear, succinct instructions. The first one is that you will appoint judges and officers. The second one is that the Lord is providing them. The third is that they will judge righteously. The fourth one being that they will not take bribes or show partiality. And finally, they will pursue justice. You see, 
This system, as long as they kept in line with God, provided them with what they needed. They appointed judges that God provided, and that inevitably meant that the judgments that they rendered would not be their own judgments. It would not be according to their justice. It would not be according to their righteousness, but it would be according to the judgment, the justice, and the righteousness of God. And he tells them to keep themselves from the things that would pervert justice. Things like immorality, things like bribery, partiality. He says, do this and you will inherit the land that God is giving you. So if God is establishing such a favorable system in which he is implementing and he will be the true judge over the judges, such a foolproof system, How is Israel to a point that they no longer want this system? In short, immorality. And not just immorality for a little time. Immorality for a long time. It was their own immorality that they were responding to. But they were also responding to the immorality of the judges. They had seen the immorality of the priests as well. When we are introduced to the Israelites during this time, we are told that they had not actually kept in step with the Lord and what he has said regarding the judges. But why not? Why had they gone astray? Well, we learn that the priest's immorality begat the immorality of the judges, begat the immorality of the people. Their sins eventually lead to a systemic breakdown of Israel, so much so that they were doing, as the Bible says, what seemed right in their own eyes. But this is actually what leads to their decay. God told them that there is a standard of truth. All truth is rooted absolutely in God. There is one truth absolutely, and it is found only in God. And so their desire to do their own thing led to disarray. It led to disarray of the family. It led to disarray of the community. It led to disarray of the system that God had put in place. So what does Samuel do? He appeals to them and he tells them, you must return to the Lord with all your heart and that they would prevail over their enemies if they did so. And they did for a time. That is until now. So what precipitates their reasoning here? Look at what it says. Yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and they perverted justice. It was the sons of Samuel themselves who had actually violated what God had established for the office of the judges. So we have a problem here. And let me know if you see at any point in this sermon any similarities from yesterday till today. You have people in offices, those who've been given authority to rule justly, and instead of doing so, they pervert justice for their own gain. And the reasoning behind finding a solution seems to be the same yesterday as it is today. This is a a systemic problem, Samuel, and we know how to solve it. We need a king. But I really want to examine their broken logic here. 
They assessed that there was a moral issue with what was supposed to be the judges that were judging them. But instead of calling the sons of Samuel to repentance, they called for an, an entire paradigm shift in the government. So it does stand to reason that we should assess whether or not their response was actually equitable to the crimes of Samuel's sons. They find out that Samuel's sons are in sin, and they think that that means that there was a systemic issue. There was not a systemic issue. There was a sin issue, and there was a people issue. There was nothing wrong with God's system. This was, in fact, the system that God had set up, but that system was perverted by the sin of man. But see, they don't address the sin. This is an issue that is common with us today. We're always trying to correct the result of the issue, but few people want to actually get to the root of the problem. There was a man who had an apple tree in his house, and he grabbed an apple off of it to eat. And when he grabbed it, it tasted terrible. It was horrible. He then discovered that a worm had actually gotten into the apple and ruined it. And so he went and he got his axe and he decided, I'm chopping down this whole tree. Because these apples are disgusting. They've all been ruined. Seeing this, his neighbor asked him why he was destroying the tree. And he said, because this worm ruined every apple on this tree. The neighbor then grabbed one of the apples, tasted it and said, I think these are fine. He said, you mean to tell me you cut down the whole tree because of one bad apple? When people overreact like this, it really reveals the condition of their hearts. Look at what happens when the Israelites make their proposition. They don't just say, give us a king who will judge righteously. They don't say, give us a king who will uphold justice. Give us a king who will not take bribes. Give us a king who won't show partiality. They didn't say any of that. This is what they said. We want to be just like all the other nations. They were using their sin as an excuse to get what they wanted anyway. Their real desire was what it had always been. God, just let us be like everybody else. See, everybody wants to be special. Everybody wants to be unique. Everybody wants to be called of God until you have to live in the parameters of that calling. And then nobody wants to be called of God. You know what, God? I'd rather just have another king. At the heart of their complaint was ungratefulness. Things are not perfect for us like they are for the other nations, which, by the way, they weren't perfect, right? But this type of ungratefulness always makes you think that somebody else's way, somebody else's system is more effective than yours, that is working better than yours. And so they reason, well, they're all doing so well, all the other nations have a king, so we obviously, we, we need a king. Now, why would they say that? Because they didn't like the way the king they had actually judged them. Listen, God tells Samuel this, Samuel, they're not rejecting you. They're rejecting me. They don't think that I'm the adequate judge. They don't think that I'm the adequate king. And I can tell you why. I can tell you why they thought like that. Because God is a real king. See, that's, that's actually their issue. The reason they had issues with Samuel's sons for taking bribes and perverting justice was actually the same reason they had issues with God. 
because God wouldn't take bribes. God would not pervert justice, and he could not be dethroned. We learned this when they tried to take the ark and bribe God for their sins and say, here we have the ark, God. Won't you forgive all our sins? He says, no, because God has a standard of righteousness that he does not equivocate for anybody. It will be righteousness yesterday, today, and forever. God does not change. But you see, that's the issue. God does not change. There's this problem that because God is perfect in his nature, because he is perfect in his justice, because he's perfect in his righteousness, he has this standard. And you see, they view their king the way we view our president. And it's all unhealthy. I don't want anyone, I don't, I don't want anyone who actually has a moral standard beyond myself who judges and rules based on that standard. I don't want that. We say we want that, but we don't really want that. This is what we want. I want someone who has the same moral standard that I have, who will rule and judge and make decisions based on what I want who will make decisions based on my standard, based on my righteousness, based on my justice. My desire is not actually righteousness or justice at all. No, it's for justice as I see it. And you see, we just don't get that with God. God as the king of Israel, God as our king and ruler, is not our personal representative, people. He is not our senator. He is not our elect. He doesn't look at Brandon and say, I will be to Brandon the God that he needs for all that he desires. I will execute justice as he sees it. No, we don't have a God whose government is running them up. We have a God who has a righteous standard and who will not change that standard for you or for me. No, he says, I will be God consistently as I am yesterday, today and forever. There's no changing. And if you can't get with that, then the problem is with you, not with God. God is consistent. But you see, the problem is we don't want consistency. We want progressivism. All right. See, we want change. We want everything to change. But the issue is, how can we expect change from a God who says that he doesn't change? The issue is that we won't change with people, but really the issue is unless we create some system where we can manufacture change in people's life, there is one way that anybody changes, and that's the gospel. See, that's what Israel wanted. They wanted change. They wanted progressivism. They didn't want to have this antiquated system that had been done away with by other nations. They didn't want to have their morality just attached to this singular God. So they pleaded that God would king them so they could be just like everybody else. They thought that because the judges had failed so miserably that somehow having one king with whom they would now hitch their moral wagon would make a little bit more sense. But Samuel warns them. He says, see, when you have a king, like when you have a president, You go the way he goes. Your morality is now attached to him. Your sons will fight in wars that he provoked. Your land will now be his harvest. Your work will now be his gain. And then you're going to cry out to God, but he won't answer you because you've been kinged. 
Did the judges pervert justice? Absolutely. Would the king pervert justice? You better believe it. Does the president pervert justice? Every single one of them. Why? Why is God allowing this to happen? Why is it that we can't find a president who can balance out economic and social concern with Christian values? Why is it that every time we hope in someone, it leads to utter disarray of our country? Because God is showing us that unless we trust him as our sovereign, all other attempts at truth and justice and righteousness will be perverted by sin. And this is where we struggle the most. We want everything to be solved by taking justice into our own hands because we think we know better. We think that our person will be the executor of justice and then our hope is in that person, in that person's policy. For liberals, their hope is that the world will be redeemed through progressive and social policies. They hope that things like gun control will police the heart of wicked men, but their hope is placed in the wrong place. Conservatives believe that the problem with abortion will be solved by conservative justices and legislation and policies. But again, their hope is misplaced. So if I can't hope in policy, if I can't hope in people, and if I can't hope in a president, where's my hope? Where are we supposed to go if we can't hope in our elected officials? Where can we go to see our world healed? We have to go to our true king. We must stop putting our faith and trust in things that are destined to fail. In 2 Chronicles, is one of these texts we all know and quote out of context, 2 Chronicles 7 and 12. Then the Lord appeared to Solomon in the night and said to him, I've heard your prayer and have chosen this place for myself as a house of sacrifice. When I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain or command the locusts to devour your land or send pestilence among the people. If my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven. And will forgive their sin, and I will heal their land. Listen, this scripture is often used out of context, but it does teach us something important. Does God use pestilence, disease, and violence as a means to show us that we need to repent? You better believe it. Does God use calamity as a means to make us run back to him? Yes. See, the solution for sin, y'all, it ain't a policy, it's not a person, it's not a president, it's not a king. The solution for sin is repentance. That's it. It is returning in humble submission to a holy God on our face, bowing before him, begging him to accept us. Because only he can heal the condition of our heart. Listen, it is easy for us to try to fix the result of someone's sin, but the real work is, can we get to the heart of the matter? And let me break some news to you. Apart from the gospel, we can't change anybody's heart. 
You may police public action, but you can't change the heart. You and me, no matter how strong our efforts, cannot will righteousness in anybody. Only the gospel can stop an evil heart from picking up a gun as the last resort. Only the gospel can prevent a young woman from thinking that termination is her only option. Apart from a dramatic turn of repentance, there is no real change. If you don't believe me, you know how long ago the Civil Rights Act was put in place? How many hearts have been policed by that? How much racism has that stopped? Listen, we can pursue justice as much as we want, but if our pursuit of justice is not a pursuit of God, it will fail. So what should we do? As opposed to Israel, who drifted from God in the midst of unrest, who drifted from God in the midst of perversions of justice and bias, we must run to God. In a world where a man walks into a grocery store and kills people at will. In a world where children are slaughtered at the hands of an 18-year-old young man, we don't need a president. We don't need a policy. We don't need a movement. But we need a king. A real king. One who is not dethroned. One who does not have partiality. One who does not pick us according to our goodness or our righteousness, but who sees us as unworthy and calls us anyway. That's the God we need. That's the king we need. We need a king who is not moved by bribes or shows partiality. We need a king who, in the face of death and loss and grief, can declare that he has the final victory over death, hell, and the grave, and that there is no devil in hell that can usurp his authority. I don't need a president. I don't need Queen Elizabeth. I need a king. We need a king who on the cross willingly endured the greatest injustice known to man by absorbing the wrath of God intended for us, which somehow was the greatest demonstration of justice known to man. We need a king who through the unrighteousness of man can give us the righteousness of God. That's my king. Do you know him? Let's pray. Lord God, we need a king. God, we are reminded every week there is evil, there is wickedness, there is injustice, there is perversion, there is partiality, there is racism, there is hatred, there is bigotry, God. It's everywhere. And over the course of human history, God, we have desperately attempted to resolve the sin issue with people. But God, we don't have in us what it takes to heal hearts. 
God, we are in a sinful and broken world. And not a single one of us has enough righteousness in our bodies to bear that burden. We need a king. And God, the irony is that you are sitting on the throne. You haven't gone anywhere. God, over the course of two years, you gave us the world, our greatest demonstration, as six million people lost their lives to a disease, and we went back like normal. We saw nothing. We didn't even pay attention. God, it feels like every week people are being killed in mass. And we think as long as it's not us, as long as it's not our family members. But God, you are showing us as all creation groans. God, all we have to do is turn to you. God, in a world where everybody wants to know what their purpose is, we know our purpose. We are not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God unto salvation. Do we believe it? Do we believe it? Do we believe that the gospel has transformative impact on people's lives? And will we share it? God, will we not lump ourselves in the rest of every movement, in the rest of every protest, in the rest of every decision, but we will stand on the one solid foundation that Jesus Christ is the Son of God slain for our sins and that the church is built on that rock and that the gates of hell will not prevail. Lord, give us what we need to share and to show that you are the one true and living king. God, let every other name fade away. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.